Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today, we have Alexander Hamilton Charon on the show. Charon is an award-winning journalist whose work has been recognized by the Los Angeles Press Club, where he was nominated as Journalist of the Year in 2020. A lawyer by training, his articles have appeared in the OC Weekly, and Mr. Charon has been a featured panelist on national news networks, including CNN and Fox News. His new book is a fictional portrayal of an actual radio contest in the 1980s in Los Angeles with a hidden treasure and a cast of characters searching for the fortune for disparate but connected reasons. The new book is called The Mighty 690, and it is the subject of today's podcast. Please enjoy our conversation. To start, I discovered you actually a while ago and didn't realize this before we uh, were going to conduct this interview. And I read a few of your yesternow columns. How did, how did that, uh, how did that start? Well, I'm, I'm impressed and I appreciate that. That was probably my first foray into creative writing on a, on a large scale. I'm a, I'm an attorney by training. So I appreciate that you saw that. So growing up in Long Beach, California and raised my family there, uh, our kids went to a small private school called the Westerly School. And one of the other parents was a gentleman named Nick Shaw, who at that time was the editor of the OC Weekly. And so Nick and I luckily forged a pretty quick friendship and bounced some ideas off of him and convinced him, you know, if you ever needed space filled in the OC Weekly, which at that time I think had a circulation of just under 100,000 in the Orange County area, but a very well-respected publication nonetheless for its investigative journalism. I asked him, you know, if he was ever in need of space, I would love to try out some creative writing. He had written and had had some guest columnists write this yesternow column uh, off and on for a period of a couple of years and gave me a shot. And so the very first article I wrote for him was on the Mighty 690, which is the topic of the book we're going to discuss. It was about the radio contest that was held in the summer of 1981. And after that, he got good reception from some of the fellow writers at the OC Weekly and let me do it on a semi-occasional basis. Okay. And how, for you, you know, his background as an attorney and kind of writing in that, I, you know, I don't, I, I, you wouldn't call legal writing nonfiction, but kind of, you know, the, the, the more fact-based writing versus more creative. How, how, how was that transition for you and kind of working those different muscles? Great question. Really, really tough. And there's definitely a learning curve. You know, I went into law school as a, as a wide-eyed kid, you know, at 21, 22 years old and thought that I was the best writer in the world. And mm-hmm. law school really shakes that out of you. You know, law school really focuses on being a strict, focused, non-creative, you know, kind of kind of writer and really rewards that. And so I had to relearn sort of my, my writing technique. And so after that, practicing law for 15 years, I was really in need of getting back to, I want to do something a little bit more creative. I want to get away from facts. I want to get away from citing cases. I want to get away from stuff that's really structured. So I started dabbling with creative writing up until the yesternow column came along. But, you know, it's been a struggle. And I think that that's reflected a little bit in some of the the, the writing my book, The Mighty 690, is a little shorter than most traditional fiction. And I got some pushback from that, but I think it's really true to who I am. So it's a nice blend of this sort of structured writer that I became during law school and this yearning to be a little bit more creative. Yeah. And I, you know, the, the it's interesting, the content of your book, I mean, in some ways you could have written about this subject 
in narrative nonfiction form as well as fiction? Why did you choose to go the fiction route? Great question. You know, the article that I did for Yester Now, I think, was my my attempt at trying to be kind of true to the story and be factual and be pointed. And I felt like I got that out of my system. So now I owed it to that story to do something a little bit more out of the box. I remember as a child, you know, in that summer being 10, 11 years old, and really the impact that that event had on me, I think it really captured what Southern California at that particular place at that particular time was all about. And so I really wanted to do some justice to that part of the story as well. Yeah. Let's jump into some of the historical background. What role did radio serve in the early 80s in Los Angeles? And what role did it serve for you personally? So it's a loaded question, and I appreciate the question. Radio was everything in the early 80s. You have to remember, this is pre-MTV. This is pre-streaming. This is pre-cable. And so, you know, television was really limited at that time. I mean, in Southern California, and I'm sure you had a similar experience, although you're a little bit younger there, there weren't many channels to choose from. And so radio gave you a little bit more flexibility in terms of your tastes and what you liked and what you wanted to explore. There were punk stations and Spanish language stations and classical music stations. And it really became your identity. You know, when you would go to school in junior high, you know, everybody identified themselves by the music that they listened to and the radio station that they listened to. I think that's very different than, than kids today and how they identify themselves. I think it's become much more decentralized and there's so much content out there on so many different stations that it really has nothing to do with your identity. And I think so that's been a little bit of a 180 from where we were in the early 80s with radio. Yeah, and you know, we're creating something that is non-linear right now, which is a podcast. And, you know, this that kind of, you know, we'll talk about linear television and kind of like being connected to the same thing in a little bit. But I think what you're talking about, that siloing really has affected our shared language around culture in some ways. And I, I we'll come back to that. I I do want to something I learned uh, through your work was about these this concept of these border blaster antennae. Sure. Is that what you'd call them? Or like because they're radio yeah. stations, but they're you know the the tech is south of the border, and then operations is is stateside. So were these was was there more than just this particular one that you cover in the novel? Was this common? Yeah, I think it was. I think it was a common practice in the late seventies and the early eighties. You know, it was way too expensive to build that kind of infrastructure in California, given you know the 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 labor costs and the equipment costs and permitting, and you know it was a land grab at that point, and so people were you know, out snatching up parcels of land that would, you know, later become developed into these, you know, mega mansions and, you know, uh, tract homes. But, you know, it was a much more attractive option for the radio stations at that time and the companies that owned them to open these radio stations or have the, the transmitter be south of the border. And again, it's unfortunately, you know, next in line in a long line of ways that, you know, Californians exploited, you know, its neighbor to the south. And so I'm sure they took advantage of, you know, some of the cheap land deals that they could get. But this is where they erected these huge, huge towers that would emit radio signals all the way through not only Southern California, but into Central California. So the Mighty 690, that platform still exists today. XTRA radio is still based, at least the, the, the transmitters based in Tijuana, Mexico. So it was a common practice. And, you know, as a kid, I always thought that that was fascinating, that even though I'm listening to, you know, Devo... It's really coming from, you know, some radio tower south of the border, which was very exotic at the time. Yeah. Can you describe what 
690, what the, what their music was like, who they who the typical audience was. I, I know in the novel, you know, we've got a lot of different people from a lot of different walks of life listening. But what have you learned about the radio station and its impact on L.A.? So it's got a, a really rich history, and it dates back to the 50s and the 60s, where the, the Mighty 690, and again, it's had different monikers, but it was 690 AM on the, on the radio dial. You know, originally was the home of Wolfman Jack and, you know, a traditional 50s kind of music format. And then as radio did during the decades, would, would you know, re-identify and rebrand itself depending on the demographic, the musical taste of the time. So, you know, it, it had a pretty traditional radio history for Southern California and was always pop music oriented. But by the time you got to the early or the late 1970s, early 1980s, it really had a choice and it could stay with this poppy format that it had or it could become what other stations were doing in Southern California, become these big mega rock stations. So KMET and KLOS, which are still around today in some form or fashion. And it made the 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 choice to stay poppy and to stay on am and not transfer to a to an fm signal and i think that really was sort of a a a line of demarcation for people who either stuck with the mighty 690 and said okay i'm going to listen to cheesy pop music or i'm going to be you know in this in this realm of of mega rock stations so it eventually transformed into a sports talk station later in the 80s and early 90s and is still around today as either Spanish language or Vietnamese language radio, depending on what time of day you listen. Yeah, I was wondering kind of the subtext here, if the if the contest was, you know, kind of a, a sign of some desperation to stay relevant. Is that an accurate assessment? Beyond accurate. So, the, you know, the one underlying theme of the book, The Mighty 690, is, is desperation. I mean, with that choice that this radio station made, to do this kind of radio contest. And I've been fortunate enough to talk to some of the DJs who were around at the time. And, you know, they, they speak very fondly of that, of that radio station at the time. But I think that there's a, there was a hint of desperation that they were losing ratings. They were struggling with their identity. The radio as a format was really struggling with what it wanted to do and was losing some audience to cable TV, which was coming into being. So it really was a sign of desperation. And I think the characters in the book as well, exhibit some of that desperation. You know, something you mentioned in your OC Weekly article about the subject is that, you know, this decline in urban myths. And I think one of the things that makes LA LA is just kind of like illusions and mysterious stories that maybe take you on these rabbit trails in nowhere. So can you talk a little bit about your research as you're writing the book? And, you know, the the because originally it was it was suggested that an immigrant had found the money, but then it was, you know, a teenager living in his mother's basement or something, and you've, it was under a license plate in Redondo Beach. How, how did you how did and you discover this? Well, I, so again, I was I was fortunate enough to talk to some of the, the the radio management and DJs that were around at the time, and you know they walked me through the story. But interestingly, you know I can I can Google Mighty Six Ninety Radio Contest, and I'll still get six seven different versions of who found the money, and they all swear that that's the accurate one which to me is part of the ethos and kind of the, the, the love in this book and the attraction uh, for me of, of writing about it. But, you know, L.A. at the time was a place of myth and was a place of illusion, um, which I think is a, a very good uh, description. You know, and I think, you know, that time period, the late 70s, early 80s, was really when 
you know, people started to discover that that myth was just a myth. You know, you had people moving out of the cities into the suburbs and the California dream became a little lonelier. The suburbs weren't as exciting as, you know, the big cities. And as tract homes got built, I think dreams started to become a little bit more normalized. And, you know, that that myth and that dream of Los Angeles started to look less like the Hollywood sign and started to look more like, you know, tract homes in places like Irvine and Orange County, which is not a knock on, on Orange County. That's just become sort of a, a recalibration of the California dream. Yeah. Last question before we jump into the meat of the novel. I I was trying to picture this contest happening today and I was having a hard time. And I'm not asking this just because you're an attorney, but it feels like in the litigious society we live in today, running a contest like this in 2024 has a lot of issues potentially in the making. Do you think this kind of contest could happen today? Absolutely not. No, no way. No way. And that was part of part of the fun of writing this is because it really was one of the last times in pop culture and in, in Southern California history that something like this could happen. There is absolutely no way, not just because of the litigious nature of the society. And, and that's a that's reason enough alone that it wouldn't happen. And there's a great documentary that I just watched the other week on Netflix about a young kid or, or somebody who put together Pepsi points to try to buy a Harrier jet. And it ended up being just something that was, was not true and ended up in litigation, which is a great documentary, which I'd recommend. Um, but it, it wouldn't happen because there's just not the interest and the concentration around any single radio station or TV show or, you know, cultural thing that we can all point to and have something in common. You know, the beauty of the mighty 690 was that it was not just suburban white kids that were listening to it it was you know sons and daughters of immigrants and you know kids who lived in uh, the valley and kids who lived on the beach and kids who lived in tract homes and that that sort of centralized iconic thing at least in pop culture in my opinion just doesn't exist so the conditions aren't there that you have a contest like this today yeah, let's jump into the topic of historical fiction. I enjoy historical fiction quite a bit. And uh, typically I'm reading historical fiction about things that took place hundreds of years ago. Uh, you're covering something that's in some people's recent memory, relatively speaking. How did you think about that as you were starting to write the novel, writing about something that people might know about who are reading it? Interesting. I don't know if if I thought about that. I, I did want to make it relatable. I think that it's, you know, the fear in writing this book, The Mighty 690, was that it would be maybe too localized, you know, that it would be too parochial, you know, for people living in Southern California. And I want, you know, somebody who lives in New York or, you know, my classmates that I went to school with in college in the Midwest to really appreciate this. So I, I tried to focus on common themes. So if you look at historical novels, you know, one of the common themes is what are relatable themes, you know, people are fallible. People are desperate. You know, people do desperate things when their backs are against the wall. Those are all common themes regardless of the time period. So I tried to capture that a little bit. Yeah, well, I definitely, for me, and I know you're trying to be as relatable as possible, I enjoyed the sense of place. And, you know, someone that lived in kind of the San Gabriel Valley for a while, you know, and listened to... At one point, I was living in Laverne, and I would hear the drag racing going on at the Pomona racetrack. There was a lot of elements in Danny's particular portion of the story that I I could connect to in a lot of ways. Love but let's it. let's let's talk about structure and characters. Um, how did you make the decision to tell the story from a number of perspectives? 
Great question. You know, when I was young, my uncle, who was, who is, you know, 10 to 15 years older than I am, lived with us while he was attending college. And, you know, I always relate everything in my life to movies because I'm such a cinephile. But there's a great scene at the beginning of Almost Famous, the Cameron Crowe film, where he discovers albums for the first time. Mm, And I had that almost exact experience with my Uncle John when he was living with us in college. And that really heightened my sense of, you know, the importance of telling stories in a number of different formats. Lighting that candle in that scene. Lighting that candle. Yeah. It was brilliant, brilliant. And I almost felt like somebody was there in the room with me when that (laughs) happened. But he was also really involved in drama in high school. And I remember going to see a play that he was in. They put on a version of Edgar Lee Masterson's Spoon River Anthology. And that book is told, it's about a sense of place. It's about Spoon River, the fictional city. And it's told from a number of different perspectives. And I always remember how fascinated I was by that narrative device, by telling a story, the same story from several different perspectives. So that has always stuck with me. And that was really the impetus for this. And all the characters in this book are based on people that I knew growing up. So the the, the melding of those two made it good. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I feel like that's, it's such an American way to look at things, you know, kind of John Dos Passos, you know, looking at looking at these historical events from lots of perspectives. It's it's democratic. And I, I, I love it as a, as a structure and a style. Let's you make some changes with historical events here, which makes sense because you're kind of exploring creatively the event. I want to talk about the clues. Why did you make the changes you made to the particular clues that were given out by the radio station? You know, I think the actual contest, the clues were pretty vanilla. And I think that they were, you know, vanilla to the point where, in my opinion, and I remember this as a kid, they were almost, we use that term culturally biased when we talk about SAT tests, but I think they were almost culturally biased. And I wanted to, I I think in my mind, I had pictured that because the contest was so ecumenical and was open to everybody, that the clues should have been a little bit more non-vanilla. And so, you know, some of the clues are in Spanish, some of the clues are in Greek, some of the clues have to do with pop culture references, but, you know, the, 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 the final clue, without giving it away, you know, has to do with baseball. And, and I go back to that cheesy, you know, Kevin Costner line in Field of Dreams about, you know, baseball is the only constant in the universe, and I wanted to incorporate that somehow into this book, so I found a way. And your first clue relates to the founding of Los Angeles, Correct. Yes. So the, the original name of Los Angeles, which I had to memorize, I believe when I was in eighth grade for a test. And so wanted to somehow use that in the book. I believe it's in the second chapter where they you cut to people digging in Dodger Stadium kind of as a foretaste of what's to come. You know, Dodger Stadium in a lot of ways is similar to your novel in that there's a center, but it brings people from all walks of life into the stadium. You know, I, I've I've sat way, way up at the top and had a very interesting cultural experience. And I've sat, you know, pretty close to the dugout and had a very different experience, but it's amazing to just be in there together. And I, I don't, I've been to quite a few major league stadiums and I don't know if anyone, any other stadium that I can think of really has that kind of cross section of experience. Is that part of the reason why you chose Dodger Stadium to be so central in your book? Or is there another reason? No, exactly. Exactly. And I don't know of another, and I'm a huge baseball fan, and I don't know of another stadium that really reflects the city in which it's situated more than Dodger Stadium. And I, I hope that's at the heart of the decision that Dodger management has made over the years to 
keep the stadium sited in Chavez Ravine as opposed to moving it closer to downtown or, you know, somewhere on the west side. But that was a huge part um, of my growing up. And in fact, my grandfather, uh, when he moved from New York to Los Angeles after World War II, you know, worked as a union painter uh, in East Los Angeles. And that is, you know, tapped into a little bit in the book. But one of the biggest jobs that his crew had was painting Dodger Stadium when it was built. And, you know, he would regale us with stories about, you know, they were they were down to the wire and having to, to finish Dodger Stadium before opening day. And they had this crew of immigrant painters painting the signs. And about half the signs on opening day at Dodger Stadium were misspelled because you had these immigrants um, – new to this country, but willing to work hard and wanted to be part of that, you know, Los Angeles dream, you know, painting these signs, you know, so the women's restrooms were all spelled incorrectly, you know, the food concessions were spelled incorrectly, but it was a big part of my growing up. So I very much wanted to make that a central part of the book. Let's talk about Sally for a second. She's a very complicated character in the novel, a lot of different motivations, a victim, obviously, of something that people will discover as they read, but also, you know, potentially committing crimes as well. How did you think about developing her as a character? It's a great question. So Sally's based on on an actual person who I grew up with, who was an older woman in the neighborhood, and she did not work as a bank teller, and she did not do some of the things that Sally did and did not have the same background, but she really... She was a single mom, and I remember how perfectly she represented the changes that were going on in this idyllic landscape of Southern California. So getting back to L.A. as myth and L.A. as reality, she was really the new Southern California reality. She was a single mom struggling a bit, working hard to support a son, dad nowhere in the picture, but you know had one foot forward and looking to tomorrow. So I wanted to kind of capture the essence of that. And you know, the common theme, as we talked about, was, you know, these people looking for the money are doing it for a reason. They're not doing it because it's something fun to do or a distraction. They're desperate. They really need it to, to fill certain holes in their lives or in their finances or in, you know, their, their sort of future. And so I really wanted to capture, you know, somebody who reflected that desperation at the time and whatever she did, right, wrong, illegal, legal, we would have a little bit of empathy for her. Did the Dodgers winning, I, I meant to ask this a second ago, but did the Dodgers winning the World Series in 1981 play any role in the selection of the stadium? I'm going re, to reconfigure this because I meant to ask that right after no, the Dodgers question. No, it's a, it's a great question. It did. So you remember at that time, and this was, you know, talk about it. And, and I tried to pick a year that would most reflect the change in California. And, and 81 really seemed to be it. Because if you remember the 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 star pitcher for the Dodgers that was Fernando Valenzuela, that really represented a shift in the iconography of the Dodgers from being this, you know, these guys from Brooklyn to really looking more like Southern California. You had this pitcher who had pitched in the Mexican Baseball League coming up, and he it was the summer of Fernando, and so that was very much very much deliberate because I think he too and what he brought to the Dodgers really represented that change in LA myth. Okay. I'm going to kind of take a step back and ask kind of broader questions about themes in the book and how they relate. Um, It's been argued in multiple places that we're currently in the midst of what they're calling a friendship recession. While a lot of your characters are in pursuit of money for various things, it also seems that they're in the pursuit of connection. And what you were talking about earlier about track homes and isolation plays a big role 
in the creation of this kind of friendship recession, this isolation that we're experiencing. LA is such a big and vibrant city, but it's also a place where people feel pretty isolated. What is your book? What's its message really about human connection and friendship? No, it's a great observation. So these are people who are, are looking for money, but for very pragmatic reasons. But in doing that, you know, really also exposes their need for connection or their lack thereof. And, you know, so, so the need for connection, isolation, this change in California demographics and geography and, you know, kind of feeling is very much a central theme um, of the book. And it's not all bad, right? I mean, you know, this, this loneliness that's come as a result of, you know, the sprawl of suburbia in Southern California isn't necessarily a bad thing. The educational system in the suburbs is much better than it is in the big cities. Um, it's led to a lot of upward mobility and wealth for, for immigrant families. So it's, it, it hasn't been a bad thing. So I don't mean to paint that picture, but the loneliness and sort of that, that isolation is there. Nonetheless, there's a, there's a great book that I read right before I wrote this book, The Mighty 690, which was very influential, called Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam, who's a Harvard, a Harvard professor of sociology. And he wrote about this study that he did about, you know, tracking participation in civic organizations and bowling leagues and how in the 50s and 60s and even into the 70s, that was at its height. And then in the mid 70s, it started to decline. And he really reached for the reasons why. And you know, one of the reasons was television, right? That we all started now watching television instead of going out to bowling leagues on Thursday night. But one of the reasons he came up with was this move to the suburbs. And so I really wanted to, to kind of capture that. And on that note, could you talk a little bit about this kind of very sweet relationship in the novel between Jason and Augie and what that really says about friendship? I appreciate that. Yeah. So Augie's uh, based on a, a real person and as is Jason. And it's very much a reflection of my experience going to Hebrew school and Sunday school when I was a child at, at a temple at a synagogue in Long Beach, California. And Augie was our janitor and he was a, a very quiet, otherwise distinguished, you know, man in his 80s who was a Holocaust survivor. And there was really no connection that the kids had with him. And there was no interest in getting to know him. He was just sort of this figure from the past that would walk the halls and clean the waste baskets, but he was always there. And I had a conversation with him one time in the six or seven years that I went there. And, you know, he was very forthcoming about his history. And um, he was a, a, a just a great guy. And I really wanted to kind of pay tribute to him but guys like him who, you know, moved to the West Coast after World War II, either because they had they wanted to move with families or they were looking for new opportunities and sort of got lost in the shuffle. And here was this guy with this really rich history and a story to tell, and nobody was interested in listening to it. So I wanted to kind of do him justice that way. Yeah. Another major theme, obviously, is the connection of these people across, you know, distances, all centered around this radio contest. And we mentioned before that the decline of linear television and shared radio experiences has kind of isolated us. What do you think it's possible for society to have these connection points still? I mean, I think the only thing really left that I see is sports at this point. And not everybody watches sports. You know, I think I think it's overstated how many Americans actually are, are active sports consumers. I mean, a lot of them are, but there's a lot who are not. And I'm thinking through in my head, you know, what what other you know, central places of connection kind of on that Robert Putnam theme as well of just like, 
there's no, I, I, I don't know about bowling leagues. I mean, there could be bowling leagues, you know, there, you know, I occasionally will do stuff with the rotary club and, you know, that that'll get me out, but that's maybe once every couple months. It feels like this book is kind of reminiscent of shared culture that's kind of gone away in some ways. Agree with you a thousand percent. And I think that shared culture has gone away. I think it's, it's changed and, and maybe morphed and manifest itself in different ways, but you know, we don't even go to the grocery store anymore. I mean, you can press a button and somebody else does your shopping for you. So, you know, those interaction points are taken away. You know, church and synagogue, is you can do it online. COVID certainly accelerated the, the isolation and the, you know, and the, 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 the need not to have sort of central points of contact. And so I think that's very much a lost art. I mean, when we were kids, you know, they're like we were talking about earlier in the interview, there were maybe seven TV channels. And, you know, when you went to school the next day, there was a good chance you watched one of the seven and everybody would have watched one of those seven and you had something to talk about. You know, you could talk about books. I think books, you know, I think have become more decentralized. You know, the internet has certainly led us to this place where, you know, we're centralized, we're more focused and centralized, you know, to the point that we have, we can heighten our common interests with fewer people. But I don't think those broad swaths of, hey, let's talk about this because everybody saw it or everybody watched it or everybody heard it. I think those days are gone, unfortunately. Yeah. Last question before we talk about books. This is the History of California podcast. So I like to reflect whenever we you know, are discussing some artistic medium, how it changes our perspective on the history of California. So in writing this book, did you have certain ideas change about the history of the state? And what did it teach you about California in general? That's a great question. I, I tried to be, when I wrote this book, I tried to be very respectful of California history. And I didn't want to say that it is this way because I feel that it's this way. I think that, you know, somebody once said that, you know, California is, uh, or Amer California is, idolizes or encompasses the American dream. And then Southern California encompasses the, the Southern California encompasses the California dream. I still think that that's true. I really do. I think given the intersection between the entertainment industry and media and um, music culture and, uh, you know, the demographic out here and the diversity, I still think that that's true. So that's one thing that um, I was able to, to confirm that Southern California, in my opinion, remains California's California. Okay. Uh, to close, what are a few books you'd recommend to listeners that are either important to you or relevant to what we've been discussing? I'm going to let you in on a dirty little secret. I, I tend to read fewer books than I think than most other authors and the ones I like, I reread. So Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam, which we talked about, I think is a, is an absolute must read. It's a little bit academic, but there are some themes in there and nuggets in there, which I think are, are, um, are fantastic. You and I earlier talked about, or, or before we got on air, talked about Stealing Home, which was the history of Dodger Stadium in, in not such a, you know, rose colored glasses, but I think it's an important read for Southern California. Yeah. Give, um, give us your brief editorial on that book. I'd love to hear your perspective a little bit more. So, so Stealing Home talks about the history of how the O'Malley family built Dodger Stadium and the political apparatus around it. And in doing so displaced a lot of the history of Chavez Ravine and, you know, although Dodger Stadium and the Dodger bringing the Dodgers from Brooklyn to Southern California was a good thing in the aggregate for most of Southern California, it was really not a good thing for the local citizens of, of, of Chavez Ravine and of, of that 
area of Los Angeles. So I think if you're a Dodger fan like I am and a season ticket holder like I am, it's almost like you have to read it just so you know the history. You 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 forgive some of the decisions because you know you put it in context of the time, but it gives you when you're sitting in that seat watching the Dodgers, gives you a little bit more of a accurate appreciation for why they're there. Absolutely. Well, I really loved your book, Alex. I hope people pick it up. I appreciate it. And I would encourage people to get it at their local bookstore or alternative book realtor. But if you, you need to go through Amazon, you need to go through Amazon. Last question, what's next for you? I appreciate that. I've got three more kids to put through college. So that's that's front burner. <laughs> yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue to to work in my professional life, but I'm going to continue to write. There's a, a new book that I'm working on or a, a concept that I'm working on about a murder or a series of murders that took place in Southern California around the same time late 70s, early 80s, and about a, a boy who was an unfortunate victim of who they believe was Randy Kraft, who was a, a serial killer in California at the time, but they weren't able to identify him until just last year, in 2023. He'd been murdered in 1978 when I was eight years old, and his body was found in the streets of suburban Long Beach. So that stuck with me as a kid, and I want to write about that Sounds fascinating. I can't wait to have you back on to talk about that book. I, you know, murder in LA is, you, you could just never get enough. I mean, it's true. I'm with you. I'm with you. I appreciate the time. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone. You can support this podcast by leaving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash history of California. We'll see you next time.